Hello and welcome to Flynn's Talk, episode 19, and uh, I'm Jack Levitt, one half of the co-hosting duo. Jeremy Goldman is in the co-hosting seat. How are you going, mate? I thought I was Jack Levitt. Um, no, no, we've got it around the right way. Ah, cool. Jez, how are you, mate? I'm very good, I'm very good. Happy to be back. Another week that I haven't been replaced by Cam is a good week. Ah, come on, mate. there's no favourites <laughs> I know here. you're always threatening. <laughs> no, you've been on a good run since you come back. I heard the whispers in the wind. Yeah, no, we've enjoyed having Cam. Actually, it's a good point, Jazz, you raise. Yeah, um, yep. Next week, episode 20, which is going to be our finale, Dr. Cam's going to join us. So we're going to have a three-way um, co-hosting panel. So it'll be great to have Cam back. And I think we should probably um, talk about who our special guests are going to be as well. I think if you've, if you've been keeping up to date with the podcast, you probably know who our... Uh... Two special guests have been previously. We we do enjoy them. And last time, I think we probably had to cut out three quarters of what we recorded. It was a long, yeah, but it was it was it was quite a long night. Um, but uh, it was great to chat to Dr. Lewis Kirkham and Dr. Robbie Anderton, um, who are the two vets talk pets podcast hosts. So they got their own show. Yep. They came over and hijacked ours um, way way back early on, around about episode four. Uh, so they're going to join us. Uh, it's risky. Uh, but they're going to join us live. Yeah. We're going to have a bit of fun with them, Jez. Um, you and I used to do Enigma, our community show back in the day, and yep. Lewis is, you know, self-confessed, one of one of our biggest fans from mm, back then. Original fan. Um, we thought we might play a few little games with them, maybe some veterinary-themed games and, and test their knowledge in some areas and um, a few other little fun ideas that, that we'll, we'll keep under wraps for now. But um, Sunday, October 25 at 7 p.m., live via uh, our Facebook page, Flynn's Walk. Yep. Um, jump on there. There's an event. So if you jump on and say attending, you'll get a ping when we go live. Um, we'll be live for about an hour um, and you'll be able to interact with the show as well and um, we'll have a bit of Q&A. But uh, yeah, get, get involved and be a part of it. It'll be, it should be fun. Oh, I'm actually looking forward to it. It will. It'll be good fun. It'll be a good way to send the year out and, and send the series for, for the time being out. Um, Jez, today though, uh, on this episode, we're, we're going to be um, having chat to Dr. Emma Whiston, who, who is the veterinary director for My Best Friend, um, who focuses on end-of-life veterinary care and palliative care um, for animals. So yep. she's been doing it for about 16 years now and, and has made it her life's work um, after, after working in general practice. But... Better say what she's what she's doing is is special in a normal time, let alone in this COVID time. Um, yeah, she's getting out and, and helping people farewell animals um, in the comfort of their home or their favourite park or whatever it might be. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to having a chat to her. Me too. We we both heard her speak. What was that? That was pretty much exactly a year ago. Now we were at the symposium and and met uh, met Emma there and sort of started the started the relationship and. It'll be it'll be good to dig a bit further into her life and what got her to where she is today. And welcome to Flynn's Talk. Thank you. It's lovely to have you. And um, the last time I saw you um, was actually a pretty full-on day for myself and my own family. Um, I shared the story of me losing my own cat, Maisie, who was 15 and a half, and, and I celebrate an amazing 15 and a half years. I had her uh, half my life. I've just turned 30. And um, you did come to my house and help us farewell, Maisie, and we thank you um, for that and your care that you, you gave us. And I know that it's been a particularly big year for you this year, um, 
maybe just starting there before we go back to the start, take us through what this COVID time has meant for you and, and how you're traveling. Well, I think I'm traveling a lot better than a lot of other people. So I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, we have been super busy. We're the busiest we've been in 16 years, sadly. Um, but what, what has happened with um, the vets in this time, um, they, um, so at vet school, we learn a lot of epidemiology, virology, microbiology. We're really good and all about zoonoses. Um, so we're really good as vets at, um, at helping stop the transfer of infectious diseases. So the vets have been amazing and I do not envy them at all um, in practice. They've had to um, you know, make all, all, all the restrictions. And part of those restrictions have been that a whole family can't go in with their pet um, while they're euthanized at the clinic. Um, they're, you know, they're usually pretty small rooms, the consult rooms are not they're not huge um, and some vets have offered to do it if it's an outdoor area or you know in the car um, so some dogs love being in the car so that's a good place yeah it's not a bad thing to be doing a euthanasia in the car park if they hate going into the into the vet clinic yeah, yeah. so we um so all of our vet clinics in melbourne we have over 100 that refer um euthanasias at home to us and end of life care so they have um offered that option more at the moment because it's better it's better for the family and it's actually better for the referring vet um it's you know so we we have uh we've been yeah really really busy and helping people which yeah it's starting to settle a little little bit now we're just waiting we're just waiting to see what happens next and um yeah but we've we've we're certainly happy to be able to help as many people as we can. And have the restrictions had too much of an or have much of an impact on you? No. I um, Well, the Australian Veterinary Association put out a list of guidelines um, for us vets, you know, through this time. And, you know, I've made sure that I've adhered to all of that uh, and the veterinary board and the, the AVA um, recommendations. Um, but I am allowed to go into people's homes. Um, we started with gowning and gloving and masking and everything, but we're down to masks now um, and that's perfectly fine. So just masks and try and be distant. But when you're euthanizing a pet that someone wants to cuddle, uh, there's not a lot of distance there. So, yeah. So, But I haven't felt frightened or worried at all, just being careful. Yeah, and I commend you for, for still doing that. Um, some people may not, um, and, and you've definitely taken everything this year in your stride and continue to do the work that you do. I've also had the pleasure of meeting your dad, um, Dr. Nigel, who uh, is probably one of your biggest, if not the biggest influence on your career. Is that right? Mm, that is right, yes. And here's where mum gets a bit cranky because... <laughs> Uh, my mother's a lovely my parents are 88 and my mum is a lovely fierce Scottish woman who you know she's fantastic and she had five of us I was the youngest um but yes look my dad is uh my first and main mentor and um I adore him he's uh he's a very kind and gentle man and um you know I helped him as a child um with with veterinary work and yeah, so I didn't realise how blessed I was until, yeah, not too long ago. Mm, yeah. And your dad um, came out from the UK in the 60s and was somewhat of a, well, I've seen him and heard him referred to as a, a veterinary pioneer, but not only just for care of animals, but 
the care for his people and the people coming to his businesses as well. Just just kind of profile your dad a little bit for us about how he how he got that really good reputation. <laughs> so dad, um, dad basically is the closest I can, uh, the closest person I can think of is if m- most of your um, viewers have probably watched James Herriot and All Creatures Great and Small. Yep. He's very much like James Herriot. So um, he comes from the same area um, and has the same beautiful bedside manner and um, he's kind and he's, he's generous um, to everybody. Um, uh, the animals and the, and the clients. I remember once a lady came into the clinic and uh, she didn't have any money and um, that he said, that's okay, I'll, I'll see her, I'll see her pet and he treated the pet, etc. Anyway, she left and um, she left, he'd given her, instead of giving her a bill, he gave her a $50 note. Because wow. <laughs> she didn't have any petrol, much petrol left in her car to get home. Yep. Um, and I remember that about him. So he's, he's, you know, and to the five of us kids, he's, um, he's just been, he's just beautiful. So sorry, mum. <laughs> You're nice too. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, uh, what was the menagerie like growing up around the house with your dad being a vet? Was there all sorts of animals being brought home to be cared for? And- uh, it was amazing. Yeah. It was in the seventies. I grew up in research, which is near Kangaroo ground, um, all dirt roads then. Um, and as I say, youngest of the five human kids. And um, uh, <laughs> so we had, uh, yeah, we had horses and dogs and cats and lizards and just everything and you know in those days in research you know there's tiger snakes and the sorry about Sadie my dog in the background (laughs) got something to add you're right Sadie (laughs) she has sorry (laughs) Sadie hush um yeah and the tiger snakes in the 70s were like giant pythons are incredible anyway and I used to yeah go with dad to work and in those days it was a bit different there was a lot more strays and people didn't desex their animals so it's a lot hit by cars and a lot of wildlife and um while he worked in Ringwood he was uh, my godmother started the practice um uh, my godmother started practice in the 50s it was one of the very few um practices in in Melbourne and she was the first um Australian veterinarian so um Margaret Goodwin and she actually bought him out from, there was a shortage of vets in the in the 60s and and she went over um, to London and and she uh, basically um, employed him said you want to come over so um, they came over with four kids I was the only one born here in 1970 um, yeah but growing up was amazing I, I had an amazing time and being the youngest and the funniest <laughs> and they all you know I, I had a wonderful wonderful childhood so it's interesting that um, what was to come in later on was really odd. It was, it's a real, I'm a bit of a paradox. Uh, yeah. So. And so having that sort of, having that experience growing up and your, and your dad as that role model was, was becoming a vet always something that you wanted to do? No. <laughs> so yes, you would think so. And I did not know that being a vet was in my blood and in my genes. I didn't know. There was no suggestion from mum or dad or anyone of me, of any of us becoming a vet and now I know why later on because it's so damn hard to do <laughs> so no I wanted to be an actor I was um uh, I was into acting from the age of 10 and mainly stage acting um and yeah trained as an actor and then 
something happened, I don't know what, in year 10. Um, in year 10, and I realised, I don't know, I had some sort of epiphany, I don't know where or when, but um, it doesn't matter, uh, that I could actually do what Dad does. Like, I admire so much what he does. I, I thought, I can actually, I could do that. I'd love to do that. Come, I've never thought of that. And it was quite strange. And when I told mum and dad, they just, they almost begged me not to do it. <laughs> they said, no, please, just be an actor. <laughs> yeah. Don't, um, no, just don't do you it. You quite often hear the opposite. I know. You hear like other people say, James Harriet, yeah. I grew up with that. And, and so weird that I had my own James Harriet as a dad and I helped him with surgery and I, the nurses were amazing there and taught me so much and I always was in the clinic. Um, so it's quite odd. It, there was never an expectation, but yeah. it was dear 10. So I went to, to school. I had to change all my subjects and I said to the, um, the careers counsellor, um, I'd like to do veterinary science. And she just looked at me and kind of chuckled and said, you're not smart enough, dear. And so I, being me, went, oh, well, F you. I'll show you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you, lady. <laughs> Worked my ass off and got in. So, um, and, you know, that's um, so really odd. It didn't click for a while. Mm, but it definitely is in my blood. Tell mm. you what, I've picked up on a bit of a theme, Jazz, is that don't ever tell someone that they can't become something, especially if they're geared up, yeah. geared up to well, be yeah. a vet because <laughs> they'll prove you wrong 10 times over and, and get it done and, and absolutely smash it as you've done. So you got in... Um, as as many new grads do, you, you jumped into general practice and, and from there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So went straight into it. We were the last year in 1988, 89 to go straight from school, BCE, to um, straight into vet science and then changed from then and now it's much harder, I think, doing, um, yeah. And um, had a ball at uni. Um, had, there were only 40 students in our year at at uni in those days, I think now what is there a hundred? Now a couple of hundred, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. So quite in, big. back in nineteen eighty nine, there was forty two of us. Um, had an absolute ball. Had a fantastic year. The year above and the year below, and us, we just there's, there's so many marriages that occurred <laughs> between the three years. Um, it's not funny. There's about ten ten couples. Um, had a lovely time at uni, was the life of the party, always the one to, you know, get naked and run around. Like, Hang on a minute. Know, why would we do that? We just did. <laughs> sounds, sounds a lot like Flynn, actually. Yes. <laughs> so always the one up for the challenge. Must be a vet thing. I, I never got it personally, but. <laughs> so Flynn did that too. Yes. Always yes. naked? Always naked. Really? You didn't even have to ask. Oh, yep. I never knew didn't that. Didn't even have to ask. I never knew yep. that. There was a. I like to think we had to persuade him, twist his arm and egg him on to do it at the snow one year. We were away at the snow, but it was kind of like suggested as a throwaway thing and before we knew it, <laughs> we, it was on, it was happening. I love that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, anywho, so, yeah, so so graduated. But during that time, I did have periods of depression and anxiety. So classical people still say to me, "How you, depression? Like, really? Anxiety? And... Um, yeah, me. So um, Emma, you know, with the blonde hair and her kid off and all of that stuff, serious. Um, but it didn't get really bad until uh, um, I then graduated. Um, yeah, so graduated, small animal practice, oh, you know, and even though I'd had all that experience and all the benefit of growing up with my father, it was 
real practice different it was different to dad's yeah it's not something you'd necessarily been prepared for i knew about all the surgery and the behind the scenes things and all the poo and the spew and the blood and everything and animal suffering but yeah to actually be um in charge of cases and be yeah just didn't i don't know just and i had dad to talk to and I, I think over the years I've talked his ear off. He got a ring. He goes, "What?" <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it was. Um, yeah, the client's expectations, my expectations of myself, um, imposter syndrome. Have I stuffed up? Have I made this worse? Animal suffering that I just, you know. And so I think that's why I became drawn, quite drawn to being quite pro euthanasia. Um, and in the end, um, I did burn out a couple of times and ran away to the theatre and the zoo, yes, um, in between. But in, in the end, I realised that I, I actually couldn't stomach the, the suffering. Um, I can't even watch animal movies. Um, and so um, I, that, I think euthanasia really suits me because I'm relieving suffering all the time. There was something, something I've, I've managed to speak with a few vets now um, not just through this podcast, but in person as well. And I was talking to um, Jesse's Jesse's mum, who's a veterinarian, and we had Jesse Greenwood on. He works with Headspace, um, and we had him on one of the early episodes. And actually caught up and met his mum, and um, she's a champ as well. And she was telling me about how they get chocolates and flowers when they've put an animal to sleep. But her perspective on that was that that's actually the part of the job that's a privilege. Um, they don't get a box of uh, chocolates or flowers um, or wine when they've fixed a dog's broken leg or, or, or you know, healed a young animal. But point to that is this is that what I'm realising and, and even as an animal lover, um, the opportunity to choose when, when you say goodbye to them is an incredibly powerful thing, isn't it? Mm. Yes, it is. And it's, it is a powerful thing and it's quite, there's quite an art to it as well as a science of it. Yeah. Mm. And you're so so yeah. Let take us down that down that track because you're doing general practice and you've just gone. You know, you went and had a, a bit of time driving the safari bus down at Werribee Open Range Zoo. And for people not in Melbourne, it is exactly as it sounds like. Um, and the bus yep. is great fun. It's not quite a Simpsons episode with zebras and um, buffalo <laughs> shunting the bus and trying to rock it over, but it is a good close too. Fun. You know what? That was such good therapy for me. So um, so the bus. So we're jumping quite a bit here to where um, so I've met Greg and married Greg and was um, had run away to the theatre and I was training at the um, National Theatre Drama School in St Kilda, um, got accepted into the third and final year, which was one of very few, and then found out I was pregnant um, uh, and promptly got very ill. I, I had severe hyperemesis for nine months um, with both of my pregnancies. I've got two human children. Um, so, um, so the bus thing came about because, um, okay, so it had Abby and I didn't realize that I, I was postnatally depressed, um, after having Abby, um, and I couldn't work and I had Abby it was, it sounds awful saying this, but I feel like I'm just going to be really honest. I, she's 18 now and Tom is 13, um, and in the most beautiful way possibly, becoming a mother and hitting the hitting the ground running and having a little one is relentless. Um, and that's when my mental health issues um, came to the fore. 
So I was able to deal with, so I have OCD and bipolar um, and I was diagnosed, ooh, um, yeah, after Abby was born. So prior to the birth, you can handle having um, bipolar. Well, I could handle having bipolar. I didn't know I was. I was just, you know, like, life party and etc etc and then I be depressed and so prior to children you can sort of get away with it and you can um you know it was still going that was in my 20s so still going out and about with Greg and everything so yeah so the bus happened because I um Abby was um only little got the diagnosis of postnatal depression couldn't work Greg's a school teacher he's now my practice manager thank god because I need managing <laughs> but um sat up one night I think I was probably you know manic and the baby was waking every few hours and thought I've got to find a job because we didn't have enough money so um I've got to find a job <laughs> so I sat up all night you know having a little party to myself looking up jobs etc um and in the morning Greg got up and I said right I can do three things. <laughs> One is I can be a grave digger at Melbourne Cemetery. <laughs> okay. Yep. Two is I can uh, work as a, a phone sex worker. Yep. Quite well. Yep. <laughs> or three, I could learn to drive a bus and I could drive around uh, around at Werribee Zoo. And he said, "Well, I think that one's probably the best." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair call, Greg. <laughs> So I went off to learn. I had to get my truck license, my yep. heavy vehicle license. And I tell you, achieving getting my heavy vehicle license really brought me from being really pretty low to really um, feeling a lot more confident. I think becoming a mother can make you feel very vulnerable. So, yes, yeah, so I got it and I went and I just spent the next 18 months like driving down to Werribee and driving down the zoo and you had to do it got headphones and you sort of fitted with the acting and being able to yep, tell yep, people things. Oh, yep. the full, yeah, right, the script and everything. Wow. But really, I was just sitting there like watching the hippos and watching the rhinos and just it was it was mm. therapy. Wow. It was beautiful mm. therapy. It healed healed me a lot. Yeah. And then I found a psychiatrist and yep. got diagnosed properly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, you know, I've, I saw her for 16 years, I think. So she's retired now and I'm good. I've been good for... 15 years, 15, 16 years, which is good. On meds though. Yeah. But I'm in a good place. 50 this year and I'm I sort of feel like I've made it. I Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You found what works. I have had several times um when I felt like that I don't want to be here anymore. And they were back in my twenties and thirties. Yeah. So um so I know what that feels like and I'm happy not to feel like that anymore. And that's it. I mean, everyone talks about the journey, but it can it can be a really long process to find to find what works and, and to get yourself to a stable position. Yeah, that's right. And then to, I think a lot of people when they feel better on meds tend to go off them. And I, I know my, my psychiatrist, I mean, she became more like a life coach. I just go in and we just have a laugh and a chat. Um, so I... Yeah, it takes a long, can take a long time, but you need to find mentors and you need to find, you know, support for yourself and 
you know, I believe that veterinarians, there should be some form of um, supervision or checking in with someone, you know, as, as medicos need to do that. Yeah, that's, yeah, we've certainly talked about that a lot over the, over the series about having these mentorship programs and how important they are. Yes, absolutely. Happy to be a mentor. I've got mentor, I've got, I've got younger ones who I mentor and I love it. So, Lovely. Um, yeah, happy to, um, yeah, got nothing to hide. So um, happy to help. Yeah, you know, you're you're an open book and, and appreciate you sharing your story because um it just provides a perspective and, and as Jez said, you hit the nail on the head, it is a journey that can be ongoing and can be can be lifelong for some people and that that is okay. Um the most important bit is getting the intervention when you know when you realise you need it. Um and, and uh I guess someone or something pointed you to get out there and drive that bus and that was a real um turning point. It seems for you. The bus was good. The bus was great. Hello, wherever you see. So you've navigated through that that time. And after driving the bus, did you go back into general practice? And then from there, you've, you've decided, um, you know, you were seeing animals laying on a cold, table sterile environment these animals at the end at nearing the end of their life or or may have a um, terminal illness um like my cat Maisie uh, who had kidney disease and had um you know she'd gone downhill pretty rapidly in a couple of months for a couple of years there we had her on the diet and she was doing really well and thriving and then she went down really you know and, and the last thing I wanted was to to take her in um particularly in a COVID time as well and have to leave you know say goodbye to her at the door and hand her over or anything like that but you were seeing that day in day out and what just had a moment of like i can't i can't see it done this way anymore what what pushed you what was the shove to to create um, my best friend um yeah so it was it was longer term um and by the way yeah thank you for letting me help Maisie. it was an honor to help and to be there so thank you for that um i think that I realised, and I think this is a thing, is finding, having a veterinary degree gives you a lot of options and they may not be conventional and they may not be purely veterinary. And I think that's what, if you have that degree, that's, it's kind of like you can imagine up, you know, whatever you want to do. And I think um, it came down to, I and vets try look it's not the vet's fault the vets have a 15 30 minute consult they've got you know um, as you know um, they've got clients in the in the waiting room who are in various stages of emotional because their animals are, are sick um, you might have a, a hospital full of surgery waiting so um, that um, doesn't well it didn't equate for me um, in terms of providing what families and their pets needed at, at, at the end of their lives together. Um, and hats off to vets who are in general practice. I, I can I could never do it again. I can't do it again. You change emotional gears so many times throughout the day. Um, it's just, oh, and having to have a magic wand and have, having to have that magic wand for free and fix everything. I don't know how, you know, vets do it. And I take my hat off to them. So, and for some people, a euthanasia in a clinic is perfectly suitable. It's perfectly fine. They're happy to do that. Um, what I wanted to do was, and it, it, this is where, ironically, it comes back to my childhood. So my dad would always um, 
we would always euthanize our animals at home. We would always, we might be outside on the grass, we might be having a drink, music, big family. Um, and it was always a beautiful celebration and it was always done, you know, really peacefully and, and with love, not with, not with fear and not with hurt. So, and one of the things my dad always did was used a pring med. And um, so I, um, I started doing that when I started my best friend. So I always use a pre-med. I haven't done a euthanasia for 16 years without a pre-med. And it just makes it that, that those two stages between the pre-med making them fall asleep and then the final injection causing um, death, um, it just gives the family a little bit more time too. It's not quite sudden um, and it doesn't hurt. So yeah, so I like them to make the death transition um, with no fear and with no pain. Um, and I kind of started it and people thought I was a bit mad and my colleagues, like my vet friends and my colleagues still think I'm quite odd and don't understand how I can do, you know, up to, we do 60 to 80 euthanasias a month. So, um, so it's about 15, 20 a week. Um, and they don't understand how I can do that and still be okay. But it is what I love. It's my joy. And, um, helping um, families walk through this time and helping to provide a really peaceful send off. It's just, I love what I do. And I think, I don't know who said it, you love what you, if you can love what you do and make that your work, then that's, that's fantastic. You never work in a day. Yeah. <laughs> so I always have been I'm pretty fascinated with, um, with the death transition. I'm pretty interested in that. Um, I think I was a bit of a morbid child. <laughs> but uh, I just find it really interesting and, and just passionate about you know, end of life. Mm. And it's such a beautiful thing to, to sort of be able to create that environment and that atmosphere where, where the family's at peace, where the animal's at peace to, to be able to send, let alone an animal, but a human out in that way is, is quite an incredible thing. And, and again, it's an incredible thing that you do. Yeah. Thank you. And it caters for, um, yeah, it's very personalized. So, Mm. can do whatever they like. I mean, I've done a euthanasia on Port Melbourne Beach. I've done one by the Yarra where they had a, a picnic and, you know, called my picnic complete with wine. And um, it doesn't have to be that fancy. I mean, I had one where last week where I put to sleep a pussycat who loved all her life. She loved pink tissue paper and it was just it had to be pink and it was tissue paper and she'd sleep on it and she'd need it and everything. So we had to have that. Um, lots of dogs um, fall asleep with my pre-med with their, you know, faces in a bowl of ice cream. Um, it's, it's about, you know, honouring. And um, when we're coming to the end, I always say, you know, make a bucket list for what your pet loves and what you love to do with them. And lots of times it's going to the beach or going for a walk. But um, it's about helping people through that time to do what they need to do to get to, to the end feel Know, as good as I can about that and you know I'm I'm very open-minded so you know I mean I have um I have Buddhist clients who um have particular specifications and you know they keep the body for 72 hours afterwards that's that's their belief um you know others Hindus need them cremated within 24 hours there's religious and spiritual differences and preferences and honoring whatever the animal wanted there's it's just it's very interesting i have no boring days so <laughs> and that's it it's not like it's not like you go into a vet 
clinic and it's a one fix all every every animal sort of put down in much the same way you're you're offering this tailored service where as you say people people choose how they want to send their animal yeah, out yeah and there's no white coat i um there's no white coat there's no tables um, I always work with my shoes off. I don't believe in working with my shoes off. I was going to mention that, actually. <laughs> oh, who told you that? <laughs> no, I noticed it when you came. <laughs> yeah, always. Always have my shoes off. And it's nothing It's nothing spiritual or religious. I just I actually work on the floor quite a bit. And so it's just easier. And I feel grounded. And I think one of those acting things where <laughs> at acting school you ground yourself and breathe and all of those things. So, And I think acting school did help me to become um, comfortable with people's emotions um, and, and that's a really important part of it because a lot of these families are absolutely distraught and are in emotional agony and I think being able to be comfortable with those emotions um, and being able to do yes I've done a lot of training there is compassionate detachment that's what you're talking about earlier Jack um, so stay compassionate Stay compassionate, stay kind, um, calm and confident and um, and just feel comfortable around people's emotions. Don't try and fix them. Uh, so I do see that, but I do need a certain amount of detachment to, um, yeah, to be okay. And uh, it takes takes a bit of practice. So mm. I can imagine. And and what. In a in a practical sense, how do you how do you do that? I know that you've got your your kids, and well, Abby's eighteen now. Yeah. She doesn't appreciate being called a kid anymore. And Tom, <laughs> um, yeah, and then the the, the dogs as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I imagine that they all play. And Greg, you mentioned Greg's the yeah. the practice manager. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, if you ever do have to contact mm. my best friend, um, Greg's the one who will answer the phone and and walk you through it as he did with me. Um, but. The point there I was getting at is, is that they must play a huge role in in helping you um, have your own little bubble to go back to. Yes, and that is where I and you know I'm very very yeah. Greg is good. He's great. He you'll get him on the phone and he's um. Someone asked me if he was a preacher the other day. <laughs> I said no, not preacher. They said oh his counsel, <laughs> his counsel was so good. and it is and he knows after being with me for 23 years. He's listened to me da, 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 like lots of times and yeah. he's better at it than I am. So, um, and at helping people know when, when the right time is. But look, if I, I'll be fair, despite, despite my dad and my family and all that support, if I hadn't met Greg, I was 27 when I met Greg, um, that's right, 23 years ago, um, I can say that I possibly wouldn't be here. And I think that that, that is quite full on, but... Um, I I do think I don't know how I would have done it without him, and that's not very helpful to those listeners who haven't found their best friend yet. And I don't want to make those people feel sad, but um, you know, it, it's not just that he props me up or anything like that. He's just been a true best friend, and yeah, and having and the kids, yeah, Abby's eighteen, um, and and Tom's thirteen, and we're I'm just really lucky. We have a lot of fun and we have a lot of laughter and I'm not a domestic goddess at all. I'm not allowed to touch the washing machine. Um, Greg does, you know, all that sort of stuff. He's very good. Yeah, oh, it's terrific. Um, but because I'm hopeless at it, um, but, uh, and I'm good at my job. So, you know, at least I say to the kids, if I'm a bit wacky, I just, you know, at least you can always tell everybody that your mother was never boring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and that, you, you mentioned Greg's ability to counsel uh, and talk people through it over the phone, which um, I touched on, but 
that is that is a huge part of this process, which is actually, I mean, there's there are heightened emotions you're dealing with. Well, I was dealing with my cat that had half my life. Um, it might be the only pet the kids have ever known. Like, there might be a bit of dispute in the family about whether it's time. And and even like I went through that process myself because um, I did I did kind of keep trying to buy more time. And and my mum ended up saying to me. Are you are you holding out? Why are you holding out? And I said, it's just not today. It's not today. And then when it was the day, I knew it. But you won't. Not everyone will have that intuition, I suppose. Um, and how do you work with people to to help them know that it is the time um, when that when that's the case? Yeah. So I think um, I some people, yeah, they just know. Um, say that you know he looked at me and and let me know and it's really great when the animal lets you know they've had enough but more often than not they don't tell you that and they go on and on and on and I do see a lot of animals who um, probably should have been you know euthanized a little bit earlier but um, people need support and counseling to get there so uh, um, look I have done I've done further study um, in in the US, so I've studied in. I'm certified in animal hospice and palliative care, and um, they're further along with animal hospice and and palliative care and end of life stuff and uh, pain management. So um, I think you know there is. It's not just my instinct and my dad and my upbringing and Greg. There is further training there. Um, um, and so there are quantitative things that you can do. There are, there are quality of life scales that you can provide people with. Um, but most of it is sort of going through, um, you know, just really I, I go and have a consult and have a chat and just we go through good days and bad days and what's happening. And a lot of people don't know when the animal's in pain or suffering. And um, I'm very clear. Um, I, I certainly am very clear about saying, yes, yeah, he is. Pain and yes, the best thing for us to do is, is to is to let um, him free and bring a relief, you know, to you. So I'm not shy about being strong with people, but still with compassion and kindness. Mm. And it certainly takes that a lot of time. I think, as as Jack said, you you sort of you don't want to believe it yourself when when it is that time, but it takes it can often take someone else to to say it to you to to sort of come around and believe that that's now's the right time to do that. Yeah, it is. And we do get families who uh, often at euthanasias, um, I'll have, you know, one family, I had about 10, 12 members there, you know, in the backyard. It was a big family. Um, but some, some they're all in agreement. But some families, um, yeah, there is often one or two people who are really against doing it. Um, and it's clear that it's time. And the rest of the family are, um, you know, saying it's time but uh they're, they're they're really yeah so that we do do um pre-euthanasia guidance um consultations quality of life assessments at the same time you know so the whole family's there so it's in effect it's like a meeting it's it's sort of it's not a mediation but it's like having a chat and making sure everybody's yep. on yeah. the same page mm. and i'd say as well like um, your your animal GP, like your your regular vet that you go and see as well, talk mm. to them. Like if they've been, you know, people people gloat and say like, oh, you know, I've been seeing Doctor James or you know Terry or, or Stephanie, whoever it might be, for for years and years, and they've always treated our animals. Well, you know what? They'll give you a perspective as well. And yeah. and mm. and I was able to have um, 
some honest conversations with with Maisie's vet, and 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 they keep you. They really do want this to be the best for everyone. So mm. um, ask for that steerage. And I guess I'm even in a slightly well, what I consider to be very fortunate position where I can. Um, I got a couple of vets on, on via text message. I can. I was able to say hello to. Yeah. Them. Didn't want Excellent. to be that person, but everyone who I asked for for some guidance or or um, point or a nudge um, was mm. just just happy to to provide that ear and and support. Um, yeah. So don't you don't have to go through it by yourself. It does suck. Yeah. It is a crappy time, and we miss them. But it is getting to it is the hardest bit. Um, I tell you that. Yeah, it is, and we love. I love so much. I love collaborating with the primary vet who refers. Um, collaborating with and just bringing other people in um, into sort of a, it's called a disciplinary team um, and it's multimodal. So it's um, so we've got you know the original vet absolutely. We um, as I said earlier, I, I bow down to general vets um, and how they keep keep going keep doing this um and i make sure that we work in together so that we're we're teaming we're collaborative and um in order to help the animal and and the owners yeah it's really important to do that Mm. and you said that you said that you've got over a hundred of the uh vets that refer to you are you finding that that sort of the home euthanasia service is is growing is it becoming much more popular yes it is it is I think um it's so funny because my father-in-law 16 years ago um so we started and I remember the the first the first um client who rang and Greg and I because people thought it wouldn't work and um you know, families and stuff and I remember my father-in-law saying when we were doing 10 a month <laughs> back in 2004 he said well I think you're at your maximum now <laughs> at 10 a month. And it's so funny because uh, he's the proudest of us now. And he, he, he says, oh, my goodness, you know, I can't believe you did X amount. Yeah, and we laugh and say, you told us we reached the ceiling. So, yeah, so it's it's in, in more and more people who know. It's, it is word of mouth as, as well. And we have a really, I'm very thankful, we have a really good reputation um, and we do work with other vets. Um, yeah, so um, it is. And given COVID now, because things kind of almost doubled during COVID time, almost sort of, yeah, it sounds awful, but um, it, it's people who didn't know that that option existed. They're being given the option now. Mm. Oh, before before I met you, I yeah, I certainly didn't know that that was that that was an option. And and now that I do, it's it's certainly something that I'll be looking. Hopefully, my yeah. my little pup's only three, so yeah. hopefully not for a very long time. Well, I'm I'm planning to keep going till I'm eighty, so um, wow. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, I might need a couple of nail repl- <laughs> not nail repl- knee replacements, yeah. nails, <laughs> nails. Uh, so, but no, hopefully not for a long time. Sadie, fucking sorry, can you hear that? Yeah, oh good. She wants good. to be in part of it. Um, I will just say as well. Um, we hadn't, I hadn't had a home euthanasia before uh, we said goodbye to Maisie earlier this year, but my nan had actually had visits to her home by her general vet um, and, mm-hmm. and clinics do offer that too. So That's Emma, good. you are more or less one person. I know you've expanded your team out a little bit and have some yeah. others working with you now too, but um, you know, you can always ask the question of your general vet as well and, and see yes. what they can do for you. Um, exactly. And, yeah. And, and they, and yeah, I've, I've actually been a part of a number of home euthanasias um, in my family, but was this Maisie was the first one that was my own. Um, 
but the option has sort of been there, Jez, as you say, it's just something that not a lot of people will know about. I might even and yeah. might even make a few people kind of go, Oh, really? Oh, that's a bit yeah. and it's like it's a bit what? What is it? Like it's actually really amazing and it's and what a beautiful thing it's to be beautiful. able to, to do. Yeah, so, it's yeah. really beautiful. And I'll just inter- interrupt you. Um yeah. with the vets, like I know a lot of vets would love to do this, but when they're working in a clinic, um they I'm just for people, if you are, if you do ask your own vet, um, and they can't get out of the clinic, some people get a little bit go, oh, I've been going there for 15 years, and they could come out and and do this final act of kindness. And I say, well, look, you know, the reality is they're chock a block. Um, they can't drive out from the clinic and come and do this. And usually, I'm in someone's home for you know, on average, Sadie, <laughs> on average, 45 minutes. And, you know, your vet can't just leave the yeah. clinic and do that for that time. And that doesn't mean they're, they're bad or they don't want to do it. It's just they, they can't do it, yeah. you know, especially yeah, yeah. If, if they're not the boss. And then if you're the boss at the clinic, then, okay, well, maybe you can work that out. But if you're not, you can't, yeah, yeah a lot of the no, time. That's an important point. Mm, it is, yeah. They're still good guys. They're great. <laughs> After our loved, loved, beloved furry friends head over the Rainbow Bridge, as it's called, um, there's one little final piece to that, which is where do you put them to rest? And, and there's another decision-making process through that. But I thought it might be nice just to touch on the amazing work that Eden Hills does um, mm. and your, I guess, ongoing partnership or relationship with them because I, and a mm. special call out to Carolyn there who helped us with Maisie and she's now back here living on the shelf, cremated, which um, again, for some people might not be what you want and others um, yes. a, a friend of ours, Jez, just recently lost her dog she grew up with um, yep. and they buried her under a lovely gum tree at the house that she lived at. Um, so, yeah, just a little bit on that that last step, Em, which is to, um, yep. you know, make that choice to to where, how, how you lay them to rest. Okay. So most of my clients do choose cremation. Yeah. And Eden Hill being in Melbourne, um, well, I started off in Perth and I think I came to Melbourne about seven or eight years ago. And they are, oh, they're hands down the gold standard in, and I don't have any financial investment in them at all. <laughs> it's nothing at all. But, um, geez, they're good. That they, um, again, they believe in being personalised. Um, you know, they listen to what you want. They've got lots of options, whether or not you want a box um, or a receptacle or you want diamonds made or from the ashes or Goodness, it's that they're really, really trying hard. They're lovely. They understand, um, and and we're really blessed to have them in Melbourne because um, you know there's no one else like them uh, around, and they have a, a special identification process so that you know that it is your your pet's ashes that that you are you are getting back. Um, some of my clients um, up for burial at home. Um, I was talking. I did another um, interview on 774 last week and we got into what was there. There was all sorts of things, taxidermy and um, there's a thing called acclimation, there's freeze drying. Um, there's all sorts of really fascinating um, things that people choose to do. But Eden Hill certainly, um, and again, I have, I, I just, um, you know, they had one of my clients, they were flying out to London. They were, they were, relocating from here back to London um, and it was short notice and they need they like euthanize their dog and Eden Hills 
actually did a turnaround, like did it as a priority and then actually delivered the ashes to them at Tullamarine Airport mm, wow. just before they were due to fly out because I really wanted ashes yep. to go with them. And they provided a certificate to say what this item was in case of yep. customs. Um, they're always going above and beyond. Mm. They're, yeah, they're, they're excellent partners. Mm. An awesome organisation and there's actually opportunities as well in a, in a non-COVID time or in a normal time um where you can go out and and be a part of a service out there and um yeah obviously like if that's something you're interested in finding out more about look them up eden hills pet crematorium yes Um, they're out at bacchus marsh but yeah they're um they're a great organization and i think we've got a we've got a little i've got a little collection here of a couple (laughs) of um, family pets and my nun's got a mantelpiece and some people like to tuck them away we like to have them have them out for a photo and things like that i've got a couple behind me You've got guitars, Jeremy. I've yep. got and things there, odd things that I collect. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no, they're good. Well, thank you for having a chat with us here today. And um, you have been extremely busy and I, I don't know how you do it, um, carrying the workload that you do, but um, you clearly enjoy it. Yeah, you, you clearly enjoy it and, and you wouldn't do it if you weren't, if you weren't passionate about the work that you do. Um, so thanks for sharing um, and thanks for being open and, and mm. taking us through your journey. Thanks very much. Thank you, Emma. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thanks to Em for, for coming by for a chat and Greg, of course, her partner um, and best friend, it turns out, as well. Uh, yep. Thanks to Greg for helping us get Emma uh, scheduled in and, and for the IT support as well. Um, cheers, mate, for that. Jez, I... Um, <laughs> Yeah, she's she's a she's a special soul, Em. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that's not uh, that's not overdoing it. And and my experiences meeting her, um, and then knowing that I could call on her and Greg for help at that what is just the worst possible time when you're a pet owner, and and for them to be so responsive and so helpful. Um, that that it was it's a really personal thing for me. Um, and and yeah. I know that I shared that journey, my cat being sick. Um. And, yep. and I know that other fur parents out there will be able to relate to that and what it means to to have to say goodbye. But um, yeah, I appreciate her being such an open book and, and sharing her own her own struggles and how she's navigated those. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that she has and, and the place that she's in now. And continues to do what she does. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, if you are ever in, in a position where you're just not feeling okay um, and then that, that's different for different people, uh, Jez, there's there's help available um, through online resources and, and, and phone numbers. There certainly is. Um, we always we always talk about Are You Okay? They have great resources on their website about how you can talk to someone who you don't think is all right, but they, there's also stuff on there if you're not doing so well yourself. There's also Beyond Blue. There's Kids Helpline and Headspace if you're under 25. If you are in a crisis or if you need urgent help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. There's the suicide callback service or if it's an emergency, call triple zero. Nicely said, mate. Uh, thank you. That is the end of our recorded and edited yeah. episodes. Um, yep. But we do have one more to go. So we'll hopefully see you live next week on, on uh, Facebook Live um, via the Flynn's Walk Facebook yep. page with Dr. Lewis and, and Dr. Robbie. I'm looking forward to that one, Jez, and I think we'll throw caution to the wind and see how we go. Um, <laughs> if nothing else, it's the last one for the year, so um, we'll have a bit of fun. Exactly. No, it'll be a good laugh and it'll be a good way to send it out. Nice one, mate. Thank you for your time and um, I look forward to seeing you Sunday, October 25th 
at 7 p.m. Ooh.